The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22, if you'll stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, Coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show merciful, with the, you show, you, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not sleep or did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came uh, cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray as we come to God's word together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes this morning that we may behold wondrous things in thy law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to do a verse-by-verse analysis of this, line-by-line. And about three o'clock, we'll head for home. We're drawing the series actually to a close now over these next couple of weeks. And we heard last week that these uh, final chapters, these last few chapters, are not ordered chronologically. So we get a certain sense as we're following the history of the book that we're slightly losing our feet historically. But it doesn't make these last chapters any less significant. And we do eventually come to the last words of David. Today we're looking at this, uh, this psalm of thanksgiving that David is bringing to the Lord. And some of you will know or may have noticed that it's pretty much identical to Psalm 18. So if you, if you turned back to Psalm 18, you'd find that it's almost uh, identical. There's actually... Uh, because of this, there's, there's no psalm. Thank you, son. There's a deacon in waiting there. Thank you. Because this is a psalm and is recorded in Second Samuel, it actually makes it the best historically attested of the psalms. And it's quite remarkable as well in that it forms almost a poetic framework for both 1 and 2 Samuels. If you follow the psalm through, poetically, it's really the framework for the books. And as a song of thanks, it's fundamentally concerned 
with the reasons the Lord should be praised. That's what David is really taken up with, the reasons that the Lord should be praised. Now, obviously, because it's a long song, we're not going to cover it all in detail, but here's a general sense of the division of the psalm. So as we're going through it, you can keep this basic structure in mind. The first four verses are really looking at what God is like. They're describing what God is like to David. And then in verses 5 through 20, we have a description of how the Lord has delivered David. In 21 through 28, we're looking at the way the Lord has delivered David. So that's what the psalmist deals with in those eight verses. And then in 29 through 46, there's an emphasis really on the extent of that deliverance. So the, the language that David uses is of a, of a mighty, astonishing, miraculous deliverance. And then the last few verses, 47 to the end, describes David's resolve to praise the Lord before all the nations, which is significant for the king of Israel, for a Jewish king, especially in light of the calling of Israel to be a light to the nation. So he's concerned that his praise for God's deliverance be heard by the nations. Now, although this section of Second um, Samuel is not chronological, this is a psalm that's composed almost certainly towards the end of David's life. It's looking back over the whole of his life, and he's detailing why the Lord is to be praised. And at the end, he contemplates the promise of the Messiah. So at the end, in a sense, we get to Christ, the anointed king, the greater son of David, who works a great deliverance. So when I was reflecting on this psalm, I thought, this is such a long psalm. How am I going to deal with it? How am I going to treat it? What can I pick out of this this morning? So there's just four simple things that I want to talk about. First, we need to call on God for deliverance. We have to call on the Lord for deliverance. Second, we need to obey his law word. We need to obey his law word. Third, we need to go into the battle with faith and confidence. And finally, we need to give thanks and praise to Christ before all the unbelievers. So that's the simple four things I want to say. We need to call on the Lord for deliverance. We need to obey his law word. We need to go into battle in faith and confidence. And we need to give thanks and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ before unbelievers. So let's think about calling on God for deliverance first. If we are to call on God and actually be heard, for God to hear us, we need to know our God. We need to know our God. We need to know his character. We need to know something of his attributes. We need to love him with all of our hearts. It might be worth just having a thumb in Psalm 18, the parallel psalm, because Psalm 18 begins just very slightly differently. I love you, Lord, my strength. That's how David begins. I love you, Lord, my strength. Actually, Luther translates the beginning of this song beautifully. He says, I dearly love thee, O Lord, my strength. I dearly love thee, O Lord, my strength. So it's out of his experience of God 
in his long life, David looks back over it all and he says, I dearly love thee, Lord, my strength. And he tries to capture then in metaphors what God has been to him. Now, David was a musician and a songwriter. Some of you may get a giggle out of the fact that I sometimes play the guitar up here, but that's what I used to do all of the time. Actually, at the very beginning of my own ministry, I was a singer-songwriter, and I toured in a band for two years, the Boot Brothers. We were excellent. Look us up. Actually, I don't think you can find anything on YouTube because YouTube didn't exist when the Boot Brothers were on tour. But David was a a singer. He was a songwriter. He was a musician as well as a warrior fighting the battles of the Lord. I think that's quite an interesting combination, don't you? David was a warrior, yet he was a singer and a songwriter. I think it's a reminder to us, especially to us men, That feeling things deeply and rejoicing in the arts are not in contradiction with one another. And it's not unmanly. It's not unmanly to feel things deeply and to want to sing praise to God and to say to the Lord, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. I dearly love thee. And I want to sing about it, compose music and songs about it. Maybe some of the romantics among you may have composed a song for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Who wants to admit it? But we can actually compose songs to the Lord. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's no contradiction between serving God in the heat of the battle, that martial imagery, very masculine, manly imagery, and at the same time write poems and songs of praise and worship to God. And David sang about what was in his heart because he'd been in a battle all of his life. All of his life, from the time he was a boy fighting bears and lions trying to kill the sheep, and and then the first time I think he takes takes up war, He picks up his slingshot and he slays a giant. And for the rest of David's life, where there's some seasons of peace, he's he's in the battle. Do Do you feel like in your life you are in the battle constantly? Now, I don't know if you've ever written a song or composed any music, but good songs and good lyrics, not trap music and all of that sort of gibberish, Actually, some of the rappers do actually compose some interesting lyrics and songs. There's some good poetry there. I wouldn't dismiss it all, but the best songs come out of deep reflection on your life and feeling things deeply. Right? That's what art really is. David was an artist. For something to be really worth listening to, really worth reading. It needs to be something that's been reflected on and is felt deeply. Well, David loves the Lord who's delivered him. He wants to sing to him. He wants to sing about him. And it reminds us that what we sing is so very important. Because you will find that you remember what you sing. 
You know, as you get older, and I'm only at half time, but some of the very elderly, even when we start to diminish in our capacity, we remember the songs that we sang when we were children. Music comes back to us. We can't remember what we had for breakfast, but we can remember the songs we sang 50 years ago. What we sing teaches us then a lot about the Lord. It's much easier, kids, you know this, because you know, my own children, they seem to remember every song they hear on the radio. They've heard it once, and they remember it because the tune and the music, uh, the, uh, the lyrics go together, and you remember it, especially if it's a memorable tune and memorable lyrics. If we sing empty songs and unmemorable tunes, we're not edified. Many of the, uh, one of the reasons, and I told the young people last this during their faith and farming internship at the Institute, so many of the uh, older hymns that we, we try and keep alive, like the hymns of Charles Wesley is just one example, they wrote those songs out of their deep knowledge of God and their experience of God. Their experience of God, in Wesley's case, of God awakening a whole nation of revival in God's church. It's why we sing them hundreds of years later. I wonder how many sometimes, how many of the songs, how many of the contemporary songs we sing will be sung two or three hundred years from now by the church. A few. Not sure that many. We're still singing Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. Why? Because it was out of his deep lived experience that Luther could write that hymn. So David sang about what he knew. And this is a moment for the children, but it's for all of us. Uh, Jenny said, think about the way King David speaks of his experience of God and the words that he uses. It's very telling. He says he's like a rock to me. He's like a fortress for me. He's like a mountain to me. A horn. That's a little bit more difficult. A stronghold. He's like the thunder. He's a hand reaching down. You can find all of these in this psalm. He's a lamp. He's a shield. He's a refuge. He's a tower. So, Maybe if you're losing concentration a little bit during the sermon, scribble some of those down, write down how they make you feel as well. as what it makes you think about God. What are they saying about God? Let me give you a clue about the horn because that's a little bit more tricky. The horn was used in battle to, if you found yourself isolated, fighting, you used the horn to call for aid. And so the horn meant that help was close at hand. So if you're in trouble, blow the horn to the Lord. Now, when you look at the images here that are given, of course, many of them speak of God as being a place of safety and a place of security. God is a deliverer for David from trouble and a light on the darkness of his path. Now, it's important to 
pause on this and talk about the way the Bible speaks about God. Because David does not go into a philosophical list of the attributes of God by way of negation. That word is for the adults. The way of negation is the way of saying the things that God is not. And that is often what theologians do. They, they talk about the things God isn't to maybe give us a clue into the insight into the things we are. So we talk about God being infinite. He's not finite. Some theologians even talk about God being impassable. They're wrong about that. Impassibility means that God experiences no pain, no joy, no pleasure from any of the actions of his creation. It comes out of Greek philosophy, but it found its way into Christian theology. Now, some of the negatives do help us a little to get an idea of God, but the Bible almost never speaks that way. It's concerned, the Bible is concerned to describe in earthly human terms what God is truly like. So the most sophisticated adult and the smallest child can have insight into it. Can have an insight into it. Now, the reason these images, these metaphors are important is because we can't fully grasp God in concepts. When we speak about God, we're always struggling with human language. And that's why you find the Apostle Paul, even in the New Testament, heaping these metaphors on top of the other, these superlatives on top of one another, because he's trying to find the language to describe the God who transcends our ideas. Obviously, when we say God is a rock and he's a fortress and he's a shield, he's not literally a shield. Right? He's not literally a big stone, a rock. But these ideas, these concepts are given to us as a concept transcending knowledge. It's an idea knowledge of faith. That tells us what God is truly like in creational human language, but which transcends in its fullness what these terms describe. So what I mean by that is when we say that God is a shield, God really is a shield for his people, but the fullness of his protection in our lives transcends, in its fullness, transcends our ability to fully grasp so we take a truly earthly creational image, a shield, to know that God defends and protects us. But that defense and protection that God gives to us, that we have an idea of by faith, transcends our full ability to grasp. It's so great. And that's why David elsewhere in the Psalms acknowledges, he says uh, that God's thoughts and his ways are high. He says, they're too wonderful. Like, I can't reach them. I can't grasp them. They're too wonderful for me. I can't attain to them. So do you really take the Lord at his word? When God says to you, 
He is your shield. He's your refuge. He's your hiding place. He's your rock of salvation. Do you know this in the core of your being? Have you grasped it by faith? Or is it just a, an idea? Just a concept? Just a word picture? Can you say with David, I dearly love thee, O Lord, my strength? Is the Lord your strength? Or are you doing it all in your own strength? If you know God, you can call on him for deliverance in the battle and the struggle of life in a rebellious and fallen world. And David's poetic description of this deliverance actually pictures all of the deliverances that David had known in his life. We've worked through First and Second Samuel. You think of all of the times David is delivered. And it's like a telescope, this song of thanksgiving. It's like a telescope that telescopes all of those different experiences of God's deliverance together as though they were one big deliverance, one great deliverance. As I look back on my life, I'm at half time roughly. It's funny when you look back on your life, it is true that the certain things blend into one picture. And you see your life as a whole. And I know that I can say with David, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I was saved from my enemies. Now David uses some pretty frightening expressions as he talks about what he was experiencing. Let's look at a few of them. A few of them here. Verse 4, verse 5. For the waves of death engulfed me. Torrents of destruction terrified me. Ropes of Sheol entangled me. Snares of death confronted me. It's like a tsunami is coming in and overwhelming him. And he calls out to God. Look at verse 7, I called to the Lord in my distress, I called to my God. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry for help reached his ears. Do you believe that your cries to God reach his ears? Again, we know that God doesn't have ears like mine. But it means he truly hears us. Just like you hear a friend calling. Your spouse calling, your parents calling. What are the troubles and challenges and torrents facing you that are troubling your heart today? Are you worried about your job, your business, your future, your relationships, your marriage, your family, your finances? The cultural situation feels like a tsunami coming in to overwhelm you. Well, look to the Lord in his holy temple and call upon him. Because look what happens when you do. This is what David says. God hears David's cry. And then in this vivid and colorful description, he describes the Lord's reaction 
to the unjust assault on David's life. The very earth and the very mountains tremble at the Lord's anger. This is the description we get here. Even when the people fail to see the awesomeness of God's action, creation doesn't fail to react. So we've got these metaphors of the foundations of the earth shaking, smoke coming from God's nostrils, fire from his mouth, the parting of the heavens. God acting and responding because he's angry at the assault on his servant, David. That's the very opposite of the God of the philosophers, the impassable God who feels nothing, is touched by nothing. The cherub, in verse 11, he rode on a cherub and flew soaring on the wings of the wind. Is a picture there of all the powers of creation which act like the throne of God. There's nothing static about God's response. He doesn't say, oh, let me contemplate David's situation. No. God acts. He's angry. Creation responds. He acts to deliver his servant, and he does so thundering in in an image, a picture of a violent storm. And actually, those are the figures that are used frequently in the Bible. Ever since Sinai, where God gives his law and there's a storm and darkness and thick cloud and so forth, the Bible frequently then uses the image of the storm. It sweeps near and God is in it. So David's looking back over his life, over all his battles, over all of his struggles, and it's as though the Lord appeared to him and reached down with his own hand in the midst of all his problems that seemed utterly overwhelming and overpowering and lifts him out. It was so far-reaching, it's as though the very depths of the sea, the foundations of the earth became visible. Look at verse 16. The depths of the earth became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his Nostrils. There's nothing as awesome or terrifying as the ocean. To be in the deepest of the sea and in a storm is terrifying. Maybe less terrifying on a aircraft carrier today than it was in the smaller ships of the past, but nonetheless still terrifying. The waves crashing over, no land in sight anywhere, darkness. I've never been, I've never been close to drowning. Some of you may have. But the, I can imagine the relief of being in deep water and being rescued and pulled out. That's what David says it felt like. It felt like I was drowning and a hand came down and reached me out. And it was so powerful. God's deliverance was so dramatic that it exposed the very depths, the foundations of the earth. It was like God parted all of the sea like that and suddenly I'm stood on dry land and he pulls me out. David knew his troubles and his enemies, those who hated him were too big, they were too powerful for him 
but he's brought out into this spacious place. You know, you may look at your problems today and think, they're too big for me, and you know what they are. The troubles, the difficulties, the challenges, they are too big for us. And sometimes with the opposition that we're confronting as believers, it's too strong for us, it's too great for us. But did you know that David says, the Lord will deliver because he delights in us. God hears David's cry. He really hears it. And he reaches down and he delivers him in the most dramatic way because he delights in David. He rejoices in David. We often hear God loves you. We hear it often as Christians. And that's true. God loves us. Did you know God likes you as well? God actually likes you. You think, I don't have many friends. Nobody's following me on social media. Not got many likes this week. Feeling a bit miserable about myself. How can the Lord love me? God doesn't just love you. He likes you. He delights in you. This is why it's important that when we read the Bible, we take God at his word. This is why it uses the earthly human language that we use every day. He delights in us. Look at verse 20. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And he didn't delight in David because he was perfect. Because he never made any mistakes. We need to really hear that. If you belong to the greater son of David, the Lord delights in you. He will shake heaven and earth for his children. That's what David is saying. That's what the Bible says. He will shake heaven and earth in his righteous anger, in his justice and truth for his children. He will personally reach down and draw you out of your troubles because of his covenant love and faithfulness and because he takes pleasure in you. You should get up some mornings and look in the mirror and say, God likes me, and he loves me as well. This is God's involvement in the detail of our lives that David's talking about. As he looks back over his long life now as an old man, his total government of creation, his total control of nature, his ability and willingness to personally deliver us. It's a total, that's a, this psalm is a total refutation of the secularization of life. Not the secularization of life is, it's the unhooking of creation in our lives from God so that it becomes flat, horizontalized. And very often as Christians, we nurture a kind of deistic conception of God. A deistic conception of God is that, yeah, sure, God created all things. He created the world like a great watchmaker. And now it ticks all on its own, and he's not really involved. And one day I'm going up to heaven. That's not a biblical perspective on who God is or on his creation. In Christ, all things hold together. All things consist For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. Romans 11.36. This destroys all secularization of life. The Lord is near. He hears you. He's, he's in charge of everything. He's not asleep at the wheel. That was point number one, and the others will go much quicker. It's funny how time flies when you're enthralled, isn't it? You're supposed to nod at that point. Second, we need to obey his word then. It brings us to the heart of this point, that the Lord rewards those who are faithful to his word. That's what David goes on to talk about next. He rewards those who are faithful to his word. God's salvation is purely because of his steadfast love towards us, but he's also the rewarder of those who fear him. Look at verse 21. We'll read a few of those verses. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I have kept all his ordinances in mind and I've not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him and kept myself from sinning. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the clean, my cleanness in his sight. Prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. But with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. So David shows an awareness at this point, at the end of his life. And this is a wonderful way to end life. I hope I can end my life like David. Hope I can get to be an old man and look back on the telescope of my life and see the Lord's deliverance and be able to say with David and be aware with David of my uprightness before the Lord. Now, David is not denying here the incidents of iniquity in his life in this song of thanksgiving because all, many of the other psalms he wrote are acknowledging his iniquity and his sin and his frailty and his failings. But he's talking about the direction of his life as he looks back as with a telescope. What is the overall direction of David's life? Yes, there's been stumbling, there's been falling, there's been frailty. But the overall direction of his life has been one of love towards God and the conscious attempt to walk in obedience to the Lord. That's what love to God means. Jesus said so. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. There's no contradiction between God's steadfast and unfailing love for us and God rewarding us for faithfulness. Faithfulness. David looks back and he says, despite my weakness, I've dealt righteously with others. In other words, he's talking now about his purpose of mind, not sinlessness, but his purpose of mind. And the Holy Spirit agrees with David because the Holy Spirit testifies in the, in the scriptures that David was a man after God's own heart. So, when you read this, you could think, well, I'm not like David. I, I haven't kept all of his ways. I've not obeyed all of his ordinances. I've, I've not been blameless. 
It's not talking about whether you've sinned and failed. It's talking about what is the direction of your life. Do you want to obey God's word today? That's the only question that really matters. Do you love the Lord, your strength, and do you want to obey him? If you do, the direction of your life is right. You're moving in the right direction, and you'll be able to get to the end when you're old and gray if the Lord allows you to reach senior years, and you'll be able to look back and rejoice in the direction of your life. We can search the scriptures as God's people, and we can delight in the law of liberty. The Apostle James tells us about that. We can delight in God's law of liberty. Can it be said of us today, then, that despite our failures, that we're men and women after God's own heart? That that's the direction of our life. And when the Bible speaks here of reward, that is a theme that's picked up in the New Testament as well. This is not just an Older Testament promise. Because Paul the Apostle teaches us that when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, some will suffer loss. That there is reward. His reward and recompense is with him, even for us Christians. That we are, will be rewarded for the things done in the body. But not just at the last judgment, even now, in terms of the covenant of God, God rewards those who are faithful to him. Anyone who leaves family, houses, land, for my sake, Jesus said, will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life and the next. So it's not just pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on the plate while you wait. When you come into the family of God, you get all these brothers and sisters. You get this huge, great family. Maybe you get to go and stay in their cottages. I do. Houses, lands, family. And eternal reward when the direction of our lives is set. David summarizes the point in verses 26 through 28. He says, with the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless man, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. But with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. Well, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying that God deals with a man as that man deals with him. This is a remarkable principle in the Bible. God deals with a person as that person deals with him. So David is saying here in this, in this song of thanksgiving that we are able to choose in our lives the pattern after which God will deal with us. If you want to be constantly under the discipline and scourging of the Lord, well, walk in disobedience. <laughs> and, and you will feel the rod. If you're a child of God, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son that he receives. If we are blameless by keeping faith with God, that's what it means to be blameless. It means to keep the faith with God, to keep the faith. 
God will keep the faith with us in surprising ways. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. And this whole idea of blamelessness, again, it's not just Older Testament. Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, are called blameless. They're blameless people. Was Zechariah and Elizabeth sinless? No. And the same is true for the pure person or the sincere person, as some translations render it in verse 27. God will treat us accordingly. It's very interesting in verse 27, though, when it says, with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. The metaphor has to change. It's not a one-for-one there because the Lord can never be crooked. He's never crooked with us. To use a wonderful cricket metaphor, God never does not have a straight bat. He always plays fair and true. God can never be crooked, which is why the verb changes. God will prove shrewd or astute. Astute. This means that if a person insists on going their own devious way in their dealings with God, God will outwit them. I wonder why people are surprised at that. You can't fool God. You can't get one over on God. You can't outwit the Lord. The Lord brings man's devious ways, this is everywhere in Scripture, to nothing. And everything that's going on in our culture right now, the Lord will bring it to nothing. Anything that is rooted in deviousness against the Lord will be brought to nothing. This is a far-reaching observation. You can summarize it this way. God delights in humble people. That's the meaning. Look at the verse 28. You rescue an afflicted people, but your eyes are set against the proud. You humble them. James tells us, the Apostle James says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And that's the two ways we can live. We can either humble ourselves before God and delight in him and walk in obedience to him, or we can be devious and walk away from him, and God will resist us. And he will outwit you, and he will outwit me, and he will bring our deviousness to nothing. He will, he will prove his way perfect. Look at verses 29. Lord, you are my lamp. The Lord illuminates my darkness. With you I can attack a barrier, and with my God I can leap over a wall. God is ways perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So you want to be you want to find a refuge? Hang on to God as your shield. Thirdly and quickly, go into battle in faith and confidence. You've got a shield after all. You've got a shield, that's a good start. Knowing who God is, that he's such a deliverer, and living in obedience to God, that means we can go into the spiritual conflict that rages over every square inch of creation. None of it is uncontested. Politics isn't uncontested. Education isn't uncontested. The law isn't uncontested. The arts aren't uncontested. 
The sciences aren't uncontested. Every square inch of creation is contested. And we can go into the battle, into the conflict, even where we're hated. Do you know the early church were called haters of humanity? Increasingly, that's what Christians are being called in our culture again. We're haters because we walk in obedience after the Lord. Well, we can go into all of those deep waters and we can go with boldness and confidence. We can attack barriers and leap over walls. Why? Because God is on our side. How does Paul put it? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And listen to this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All thi- what does all things leave out? If he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things, everything we need? And you know, we are the inheritors of the whole cosmos. It's all ours already because it all belongs to Jesus Christ. In verses 34 through 43, then, we read of God giving David everything that was necessary for the fight, for every conflict. What are some of the things he gets? He says, he's he's got sure-footed speed. What animal does he think of? A deer. When he needed to run and escape, he had the feet of a deer. You know, on the, at the institute, the Ezra Institute, we have a lot of deer on the property. And sometimes when I'm in my study, I see them out of the window and they're skipping along. And they come up and down the escarpment. I've tried to go up and down the escarpment a couple of times there. It's very dangerous. They seem to handle the escarpment like it isn't there. David says, I've got the feet of a deer. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me securely on the heights. He's trained for the battle with the implements of war. He's granted strength. I love verse 35. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You want a macho image? There it is right there. But bows of bronze, they were tough to pull back. You want to fire an arrow from one of those? His arms could bend a bow of bronze. He says, my God has trained me. He's equipped me for the battle. And what's better, the Lord himself has lent me his shield. That's pretty good. Jehovah has lent me his shield. It's mine now. I'm using it. Does that remind you of anything? Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God. The armor that God gives to us. We can't discuss that now. But Paul uses these martial images throughout his letters. We're soldiers. We've got armor. We're in the battle. And David is given victory because, and this is so important, David is given victory as he looks back over the long days of his life, the long years of his life, because he fought the wars of the Lord. If you don't fight, you can't win anything. So many people want to win and have victory, but they don't want to be in any battles. 
You cannot win a battle if you don't even get on the battlefield. And I feel like that with whole swathes of the church today. We either feel too tired or too lethargic. We want to win, but we're not prepared to go out into the field of conflict. David has the victory because he fights the wars. These are not his own battles. This is not David saying, ah, oh, no, who don't I like? Let's go get them. Let me muster my Rohirrim. Let me muster my, my horsemen, and I'm going to fight. All the people have injured me, and I don't like. I'm going to go get them. No. In fact, David, he doesn't even want his, his rebellious son Absalom, who was trying to kill him. He doesn't even want him gotten rid of. David's concern is to fight the wars of the Lord. And that's the key to victory. There's no rock except the Lord. So if we want our enemies to retreat, we have to fight his battles. Don't be surprised if if you get involved in just fighting, fighting your own skirmishes, you end up on the run. If we take conflicts that are created by our own selfishness and sin and stupidity, we cannot expect victory. But if we go into the struggle to serve the Lord and fight his wars against those who hate him, our spiritual enemy, and who hate his word, and in a culture that hates the Lord, against the spiritual foe that's behind all the opposition we see to the gospel, then we can expect the Lord of hosts to be in the midst of the battle. You know, that's how God is described in the Old Testament as well. He is the Lord of hosts. That is the army of God. God is no buttercup. He is the Lord of hosts. And David shows us when he gets angry on behalf of his people, he gets angry. He clothes us with strength for the battle. And David, after talking about being rewarded because of his faithfulness, he ascribes all of the the credit for the victory to the Lord. Let me just say something very briefly. that I, I think that currently... I feel for the first time in my life at the moment, I've felt we've been on the cusp of this for a long time. But we are in now the grip of a mighty struggle for the soul of this nation. We are. We are living in, we have been for some time really, but we, most people just have not been prepared to accept it. We accept it, but we are living in a time of revolution. Historians will look back on this period of history and see it as a time of revolution. God is looking for people who will be faithful in the battle. We are in a struggle, a mighty struggle for the soul of a nation, along with many other Western nations like Britain and the United States. You know, back in the 40s after World War II, we basically steadily surrendered the churches, Catholic, the United Church, the Anglican Church, even the evangelicals steadily retreated and surrendered. There's a very interesting little book written by a historian called Mark Knoll, Whatever Happened to Christian Canada? I was looking at it again this week, and he traces the response of the churches, the Catholics, the United Church, the Anglicans, All the great strength that the church had, the cultural influence that we had, Toronto the good, the city of churches. 
and how it was steadily surrendered and squandered. Modernism in the church, the surrender of gospel orthodoxy and abandonment of all the different spheres of cultural life, welfare, education, the arts and the media. We left the battlefield. We failed to walk in the ordinances of the Lord. We didn't call upon him for deliverance. This is a generalization, of course. There are always exceptions in every generation. We proved crooked. And the Lord has proven astute with his church. And that United Church, for example... The merger of the Methodists and the Presbyterians, faithful, faithful. Some of my ancestors were in the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Leaders in it. Today we're just selling off real estate. We're reaping the whirlwind politically because we have infantile people ruling over us. Socially, we see the family in decay and collapse. Morally, you only have to look at our sexual culture. Economically, we're now in immeasurable levels of debt. And when we're in all that debt, what would be better than to give everybody 24 grand a year? Spiritually, we are uprooted. People are confused. They're more interested in paganism than they are in Christ. Physically... We're battling viruses, and we're battling the response to the virus as well. And that's perhaps a greater battle than the virus itself. So I am reminded that in all of this, God's people are targeted. And I actually find myself, I'll admit to you, I'll admit to you, I am not easily discouraged. You may have noticed that about me over the years. But I have found myself of late battling real grief and at times even a sense of hopelessness for my children and my children's children. Because of what has happened. You know, because if you know anything about history, you cannot but look at where we've been and where we are and be filled with grief. It's not that we long to get back to 1950. We long to be faithful in our own era When I think about my children and my children's children and the kind of future that they will have. But then I'm reminded in my spirit, when I turn to the word of God, that God shows himself faithful to a thousand generations of those who fear him and keep his commandments. I'm reminded he's trained my hands for war. So I'm not going to lie down. I'm not downing tools. With Nehemiah and Ezra, it's build and fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. I'm reminded he clothes me with strength for the battle. He clothes me. If I look at it in my own strength, I'm too small. My voice isn't big enough. I don't have enough influence. I don't have enough strength. But he clothes me with strength for the battle. And that's why David can finish with a messianic song of thanksgiving 
the Lord lives, may my rock be praised. God, the rock of my salvation, is exalted. Is that true for you today? Whatever your circumstances, the battle belongs to the Lord. David finishes on this note of praise and thanks to the Lord's anointed. What a note to end on. Those last verses point us to Christ. God, he gives me vengeance and casts down peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing about your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David's an old man. What's he thinking about? God's covenant with me. The seed of the woman, the Messiah, is coming. The greater son of David. David was actually given victory when you look at it in the, whole, in the light of all of Scripture to make possible the total victory of the greater son of David. Do you know, if David hadn't been given the victory, there would have been no son of David, would there? The greater son of David. And Christ is the one at the end of this song of thanksgiving who's subduing the nations and giving victory to his people. Because of this, we can only have one response even in the current circumstances, to praise the Lord. The Lord lives. Blessed be our rock. Christ is alive. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation be exalted. He shows absolute loyalty to Christ, his anointed king, the descendants of David forever. And you know, you and I are in Christ. The greater son of David And we share in his kingly victory as royal priests. We have an anointing from the Holy One. So along with David, our only response is to praise the Lord among the nations. Among those who believe today. And testify among those who do not believe. We want to make the greatness and the goodness and the salvation of the Lord known to all so that they can share in the victory of the king as well. So let's come now to the greatest manifestation of the faithfulness of our rock. Because here is the fullness of the covenant set forth in front of us. He reaches down at his table to save us pushes back all the problems and challenges of the week past and the week ahead exposes the very foundations of the earth, reaches down and defeats sin and death in the grave and pulls us out. So let's come to the Lord's table now, the table of his faithfulness. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.